0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and I'm excited to share that we're back to covering multiple newsy topics within one short episode. This week, we're covering two items, the recent upgrade to Ethereum and what it means for scaling such blockchains for DeFi or decentralized finance and other applications, hosted by our crypto editor Zoran Bassage. Also, a reminder that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. Please be sure to see asicsinc.com slash disclosures for more important information. But first, we cover the news that broke just this weekend, which apparently led to a National Security Council meeting at the White House on Saturday and was confirmed by the tech provider on Sunday, which was that hackers spied on U.S. Treasury emails and other federal agencies through malware installed via a third-party provider in what could be the largest hack of government systems recently. Or even ever, we don't know the full scope yet as it's still a developing story. But we do know that that network monitoring software is used by several other customers, including the Pentagon, Department of Justice, State Department, the Commerce Department, and many, many companies as well. The National Security Council spokesperson issued a statement on Twitter yesterday that they are working closely with the cybersecurity and infrastructure agency, FBI, intelligence community, affected departments and agencies to coordinate, quote, a swift and effective whole of government recovery and response to the recent compromise. So that's a high level summary. Now let me introduce our A6NZ expert for the first segment, who is Joel De La Garza, former chief security officer and A6NZ's operating partner for security. Welcome, Joel.
1: Welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: Good to have you on. Fortunately, you haven't been on so much lately. And unfortunately, you've been on a little too much this year because there's been so many breaches. Speaking of, let's put this in perspective. And can you quickly tell me, I feel like we hear about different types of breaches all the time of varying forms. How would you put this on their perspective of, is this a big deal or not?
1: Well, I think in the last five minutes, it was reported that the Department of Homeland Security was also breached. So I would say, you know, just stay tuned. You're going to see a lot more government agencies and commercial businesses that have been compromised by this. There's kind of two real reasons why this is a huge deal. The first is that this is probably the most sophisticated publicly disclosed attack we've seen since 2014, 2015. And that's when Russia targeted the White House and the Defense Department and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and got access to a lot of their unclassified uh, IT systems. So this is probably the largest breach that we've seen by a nation state, at least it's been publicly reported since 2014 or 2015, the pretty, pretty substantial compromise of not just Treasury, but probably what will end up being hundreds of companies, multiple governments around the world. And then the second is, it's particularly troubling to see this kind of a wholesale escalation as we transition power from one administration to the other. These are typically periods of, of weakness adversaries usually like to become very active during them and so this could potentially be part of a broader campaign. We're going through a relatively contested presidential transition here in the United States and so seeing any kind of hostile nation state activity uh, in this period is very concerning and it's it's something that we really need to pay attention to.
0: So let's go into the details of the who, the what, and the how. Now, you know, traditionally, we always talk about in the security world, we associate this at Wired, we've said this on the show, attribution is hard. Do we know who did this? And do we know what happened technically and how they got in?
1: Yeah, so so attribution is probably one of the more difficult things to do. And and even governments that spend billions of dollars trying to do attribution don't always get it right. But initial reports indicates that it's likely Russia, I, I believe, that some folks have Tagged the uh, APT Group 41 or Cozy Bear that got into John Podesta's emails as being involved in this. What we do know is that some malicious uh, actors were able, it appears, to to compromise an IT software vendor named uh, SolarWinds. They make network performance management and monitoring tools. Uh, They compromised them sometime, it looks like, in 2019, uh, and were able to get access to their, their code base so the the code that they ship to their customers. Uh, And they were able to insert a malicious DLL or or library into the code that would basically create a backdoor on the system that applies that automatic update and then using that to gain access to those environments. So when the hundreds of SolarWinds customers applied their updates, they actually unknowingly installed a backdoor to this hostile nation state into their system, Ah. giving full sort of administrative access to, to all of those systems in that environment.
0: So that sounds pretty big and definitely very real, but how would you orient that in terms of the show's theme of what's hype, what's real in terms of the tech trends in security? Like where does this fit in the category of all those hacks out there? And where do you sort of see this fitting?
1: The security industry in general likes to kind of chase the the new shiny thing and and sort of focus on the the problems that are coming down the the pipe. But, you know, in reality, one of the biggest challenges in information security is actually securing your supply chain as a business business. You're essentially dependent upon all of the people that that supply you to to run and operate that business. And so that when you have a vulnerability in that chain and it gets exploited, especially by a sophisticated attacker, it means that all the businesses that rely on that third party are are also exploited.
0: Right. And by supply chain, you're not talking parts in a phone kind of supplies. You're literally talking about third party providers of all the services that companies rely on to do business.
1: Absolutely. It could be anything from the services that you use, your cloud services, whatever they may be, to the software that you purchase. It could even be the open source libraries that you use. What the attackers ultimately did was that they were able to insert some malicious code into a a DLL that was part of the product. Uh, The code essentially created a command and control
0: infrastructure where
1: it would reach out and look for new orders, look for updates.
0: By the way, by DLL, you mean a dynamic link library? That is correct. And is that a Windows only thing, or is that something that's like ubiquitous across all systems?
1: This was a Windows specific attack, or a, it was rather, it was an attack that was specific to software that was running on Windows.
0: Great. Well, not so great actually. But thank you for that explanation. So, Joel, before we wrap up, what are practical considerations in terms of what companies can do of all sizes, big and small? What are practical considerations for chief security officers, government policymakers? What should people know?
1: Yeah, this is probably one of the more difficult problems that security professionals face, which is securing your environment from your third parties. All the people who you rely on to run your business, you also rely on them for security. Any breach of one of them means a breach of your company. And so for the enterprise, it's about focusing on building a meaningful third-party risk review process, establishing a review for your vendors, making sure that they meet the security requirements that you're looking for, and then applying additional compensating controls so that in the event that one of your management systems tries to reach out to the internet or to a malicious attacker's website, it can't, right? So I think it's about that comprehensive layered approach, having good programmatic hygiene in the way that you build and operate your program and making sure that you kind of run it that way.
0: Bottom line it for me, Joel, given that this is a fast developing news cycle, is there anything that you expect we should look ahead for, like in terms of the scope of the attack or what we should expect as we see this developing story? What's the bottom line? Bottom
1: line is that we're going through a a historically... Uh, vulnerable period for our country going through this presidential transition that's been contested. Uh, That means that our adversaries are more likely to try to do something that would would potentially hurt us. And this is something that will likely continue for the coming months.
0: Well, Joel, thank you for joining this segment of 16 Minutes. Thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Zoran. Our second segment today is about the recent news that the initial phase of ongoing upgrades to Ethereum is now live. This first step, called Beacon Chain, is part of a multi-phase overhaul for Ethereum called ETH 2.0, which is aimed at making the network more scalable and changing its security framework. The overall trend we're talking about here is blockchains and crypto. Ethereum is the blockchain launched in 2015 that introduced a flexible, general-purpose programming language that enables smart contracts and DeFi or decentralized finance applications. The news of the latest upgrade is relevant given that DeFi has been in the headlines. Protocols for trading, loaning, and borrowing cryptocurrency have surged in the past year. Ethereum previously saw a major growth phase in 2017, when the ICO boom and the sudden popularity of the game CryptoKitties made Ethereum more mainstream, but also put stress on the network. A16Z crypto partner Ali Yahya joins me to do a quick explainer on the news, beginning with why it matters.
3: CryptoKitties, infamously, was too much for Ethereum to handle. It basically almost led to Ethereum grinding to a halt because of high fees for people to submit transactions and just like a very congested network as a result. And then this has, again, come to the fore more recently because various decentralized finance, what people know as DeFi applications on Ethereum, have recently taken off. So what are some of the
2: limitations we're talking about with Ethereum?
3: They have to do with performance and scalability. And there are three key things. One of them is the number of transactions per second that Ethereum can process. And today that's around 10. And if you compare that to like a payment network like Visa, then the number for Visa is something much, much larger. The second factor is the time to finality. How long do you have to wait before you know that your transaction is final? And then the final one is the cost per transaction. How much do you have to pay for each transaction that you submit to the network? And so it is impressive that DeFi has gotten to where it is today, uh, especially given that the infrastructure is still limited.
2: And the news here in recent days, and the reason we're we're talking about it here on 16 Minutes, was the launch of Beacon Chain, which is phase zero of this ETH 2.0 upgrade and is directly aimed at fixing these limitations. So how is it doing that?
3: There are two major things that Ethereum 2.0 introduces that collectively address the three limitations. The first one is that it enables a transition from proof of work today to what's known as proof of stake. So today, the security of the Ethereum network comes from what's known as proof of work, which means that miners expend enormous computational power to secure the network, thereby ensuring that if an attacker wants to subvert the network, they also have to expend an enormous amount of of computational power that's commensurate with that of the entire network to be able to subvert it, to be able to game it or cheat it. The downside of it is that it's very uh, energy inefficient and it has also performance limitations in that like the time to finality, for example, ends up being lower. You have to wait like many minutes before you can trust that a transaction has been finalized on the blockchain. Proof-of-stake gets around this by no longer requiring the participants, the validators, to expend computational energy. And instead, it requires them to just buy the asset of the network, in this case, it's ETH, and lock up the ETH to vote for valid transactions. And so it's a similar security model, but instead of physical resources in the real world, you use a virtual digital asset in a virtual world. And therefore, it's just economically more efficient than something like proof of work. And what that'll do is that it'll improve the cost per transaction because now the network is more efficient. And so validators can afford to charge uh, lower fees per per transactions. Uh, And the second thing is that it will improve the time to finality down from several minutes today to just seconds. The second aspect of Ethereum 2.0 alongside proof of stake is sharding. And what sharding means is that Instead of having every single miner or validator on the network today have to process every single transaction, as as it is the case for Ethereum today, you can instead begin to split up the work and to have certain subsets of validators process certain transactions and not have to validate all of the transactions in the network. And then what that will do is that it'll help address that third concern, the concern on transactions per second. And it will help increase the throughput of Ethereum from, say, today, 10 to 15 transactions per second to hundreds of thousands of transactions per second.
2: Okay, so let's take a step back and take a broader view here about what this all means. So it's great that these network congestion issues will be addressed and that this should make transactions quicker and cheaper. But what does that mean for innovation in crypto? What's going to change as a result in terms of new use cases?
3: Only some subset of users and only some subset of applications continue to make any sense on top of Ethereum if it's congested and by reducing congestion and by increasing scalability and improving uh, the performance of the, of the blockchain, all of those applications that stop making sense, again, become sensible. And then you can go further. Like there, there may be kinds of applications that don't make sense even in an uncongested Ethereum mm-hmm. that might make sense if Ethereum were to scale 10x or 100x. Uh, this parallels what has happened in the history of computing all throughout in that whenever someone comes up with some architecture that improves upon the previous one by 10x, uh, the the kinds of applications that can now be built on top of that computing platform just qualitatively change. They don't just become 10x faster. A whole new set of applications all of a sudden become possible. Today, Ethereum has really only been successful at um, supporting applications that are squarely within this decentralized finance category. And in part is because those applications tend to not depend so strongly on higher performance, like higher throughput and lower latency of to finality. People can afford to pay high fees for for a loan that they're taking from one of these uh, lending platforms, where uh, and they don't mind necessarily waiting waiting like many minutes for that to happen. Whereas if we were trying to build something like a game, where like the, kind of like the interactions that a user might want to have has to be uh, split
2: second has to be instantaneous
3: yeah exactly like the, the the performance requirements end up end up being different and so the implication is that if if you lift these constraints then all of a sudden a whole new uh, set of entrepreneurs who have different ideas about what to build on top of blockchains can now actually build those things it may just be the case that today those things are just not possible with the current infrastructure
2: so this is a big deal in the crypto community let's talk about what's really real here we're not going to see any immediate changes that's
3: exactly right the beacon chain doesn't actually help just yet it's just the first phase of a longer roadmap to eventually improve ethereum in ways that will address these problems but for now the, the beacon chain as it exists today kind of acts like a conductor for an orchestra but the orchestra isn't there quite yet And the the subsequent phases will introduce like all of the musicians and all of the instruments and eventually uh, a sharded version uh, of Ethereum that's proof of stake and not proof of work will exist. But right now, the beacon chain is like, uh, it's just like the first building block. And in the coming years, the the subsequent phases will, will come to pass. So bottom line it for us, what should people take away from this? This development just brings us closer to a world in which blockchains are able to handle applications that are much more than just purely financial. They could include things like crypto-enabled games or more general web applications. And that's just a future that we're very excited about.
2: Ali, thank you for joining us on 16 Minutes.
3: Thanks, Oren.